thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. What have you got happening? Well, there's a nice story I saw recently. Spider silk. Spider silk, yes. Yeah, um, it's really incredible stuff. Um, just normally it's actually stronger than steel. Uh, it's two or three times stronger than mild steel and even 30% stronger than the really high tensile, very strong sort of spring steels. Which, really? Yeah. So these spiders are really bright things. And it's not just it's stronger than steel. The real thing it's wonderful at is absorbing energy. Um, so because it can stretch, it's very strong and it's really stretchy. So yeah. it can absorb more energy um, even than Kevlar. So sort of maybe 10 times more than Kevlar. Right. So it's, they want to use it for things like bulletproof vests. Because if something if something's moving very fast towards you, it can, um, if you hit just have something steel or Kevlar, it might snap and break. Whereas the um, spider silk will bend and stretch and stretch and stretch and not break. Right. But some German scientists thought this isn't really good enough. We should try and make it even better. So what they've done is they've been firing um, zinc at various metals at bits of spider silk and seeing what happens to it. So they've been sort of firing little metal atoms of zinc, aluminium and titanium at it and they've found that it comes out even stronger. They've got it so it's three or four times stronger than it was before, so far stronger than steel. And maybe up to ten times tougher than it was originally, with especially used titanium metal. So you can make spider silk incredible stuff, but you can actually make it even better. But with an application of a few metals. I wonder how the spiders feel about that. Yeah, there is a big problem. that If you ever want to use spider silk in major quantities, you need so many spiders, it would become entirely impractical. Exactly, there'll be spider farms. So well, yeah, I think they're giving up and they're trying to make it in all sorts of things. Like they're trying to make um, engineer goats so they can make spider silk for you and all some old bacteria. So basically they're trying engineer to... Engineer goats? Yes. So some people were trying to make goats so as their milk would produce, not the silk so it came out in lines, but the proteins which you can then make the um, silk out of. Sounds like one scary experiment to me. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> Let's start with our first question tonight. Andrew in Cambridge says, a question for you, Dr. Dave. What is it about the electronic and physical structure of titanium dioxide which makes it such a brilliant white pigment titanium dioxide itself if you've got a big crystal out of it of it i think it's just a clear crystal it's just it's got quite a high refractive index that means that light goes quite a lot slower in titanium dioxide than in air than air and even slower than it would be doing things like glass um so that if when light hits it at an angle it will bend it will refract through quite a large angle um, also, titanium dioxide comes in very, very small particles. Now, if you imagine a um, piece of glass, um, if you've got a piece of glass, um, if you look at it, what colour is it? See, it's clear, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But if you imagine taking that piece of glass and then smashing it into lots of small bits and then grinding those bits up, what cut ground glass starts to look white? Yeah, white and sort of um, snowy, doesn't it? Yeah, sort of snowy. It's because all of the individual particles of the glass are still transparent. It's just because there's lots and lots of surfaces there. When light hits them, it bounces. It either reflects off them or it refracts. And so it keeps bouncing around. And so if it comes in in one direction, it'll come out in a random direction. So all the colours of the rainbow are coming down and hitting it. Mm. It'll get mixed up. You mix up all the colours of the rainbow, something looks white. Mm. I think titanium dioxide just come, happens to come in very, very small particles. And it's got a fairly high refractive index. So it will bend the light a lot and you get lots of reflections. So it's very easy to get hold of it in very small particles. And so the light comes from all directions, bounces around and comes out. You need a very, very thin layer of it to be make to cause light to have bounced off several particles um so you get a lovely white paint mm. there's nothing worse is though than getting a bit of paint and think oh, i'll just touch up that mark there and it's a totally different color from <laughs> what you've got there we go anyway um thank you very much for that question let's go to our next one alan in orpington I always thought I was allergic to cat's fur. However, I was recently informed that it's not the fur, but the cat's spittle, which is what they leave behind after they've cleaned themselves. Then it becomes airborne, and is that's what causes the allergic reaction. Is this true? I've never heard of that one. Thanks, for Alan, for that. I think he's right. I mean, allergies are complicated, and certainly the most common cat allergy is um, one to a protein called FEL-D1. Um, this most cats make um, both in their spit and also in their sebaceous glands. These are the glands which produce the oil, which um, sort of essentially conditions the cat's hair. Yeah. Um, and also the cat, because it spends a lot of its time cleaning its fur, it puts um, spit onto its fur. And then, yes, it'll dry out. And it'll um, as soon as it dries out, it forms small particles and will blow away, blow around and blow into your... Um, knows your body takes exception to this and starts trying to get getting rid of it so you start sneezing and generally feeling unpleasant mm, i think i'm allergic to my mother's cat now from uh, cat allergies to um swine flu agnes in braintree says a question about swine flu why is it called swine flu and does it have anything to do with pigs Chris is probably the expert on this, but I can certainly say something. It's called swine flu because it was it's a, the closest flu we know of to it is a flu which was going around pigs in North America, mm. so sort of America, Canada, um, Mexico. Um, it itself, the the fact it was most recently in pigs, it's made up of various, as far as people, the scientists can see, by look, taking the flu apart and looking at the proteins inside, it seems to be made up of bits of normal, older um, swine flus, older pig flus, some human bits of human flu and some bits of um, bird flu as well. Mm. Um, basically, because flu can be caught by various different animals, sort of birds, humans and other mammals. Mm. And sometimes it can jump between different animals. If you've got two flus, at the sa- if you're a creature and you've got two different types of flu at the same time, sometimes they can get a bit mixed up. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I think probably in pigs somewhere in North America, a few other flus got mixed up. It's produced a particularly virulent, particularly successful flu. Um, and now, although I th- I'm not sure whether pigs can actually catch the, the what we're calling swine flu at the moment, yeah. Um, but certainly, the the mo- everyone, most people are catching it from other people, not from pigs. So it's not, as far as people know, that I've heard, there's no worry about pig meat at all. Mm. It's just, it's just, it originally came from pigs. Flus do this all the time; they jump between different animals. 
and because um, if well, if there's been a flu that's been around for a long time, most people have become immune to it. Yeah. So it's not so successful. It's the ones which have jumped from other animals, which humans haven't had for a, a long time. Sure. Um, that we're not very immune to. So then it, they can call, then they can everyone will catch it. Mm, not very pleasant either. All right, let's go to our next one. This comes from uh, Mike, who says uh, concrete. Is it true when it was invented, it was invented by the Romans? And how do people get it a quarter of a mile in the sky when building skyscrapers without its setting? Yes, I mean, the Romans certainly used concrete. Um, as far as I know, the Romans invented it, or someone in Italy invented it. Um, I, I think there was actually a volcano where um, somewhere in Italy where essentially um, concrete came out of the ground pretty much as Portland cement, uh, cement came out of the ground as Portland cement, so they didn't have to try very hard to get the idea. Hmm. And then after they worked out how the volcano was making the, the cement, then they made, then they worked out how to make it themselves. Um, and yeah, there's lots of um, Roman buildings. It's part of the reason why they've lasted so long because they've they're made out of a, a good strong concrete. Um, things like there's a beautiful building in Rome called the um, Pantheon, I think. See the Pantheon of the Parthenon. My my Latin's not perfect. Um, which is actually um, it's the roof is a dome. And the dome is made out of cast concrete in a very sort of modern sort of. You always think it, the, the wow. design is almost a sixties sort of cast concrete dome, but the Romans yeah. were doing it um, sort of sixteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen hundred years ago. Fantastic. Um, and how they get it up and down tall skyscrapers? Yeah. I can't say I have direct uh, knowledge of this. Um, I mean, I would have thought. I mean, concrete as long as you keep stirring it. And keep going. It, it's perfectly. I mean, they drive it around in trucks. Yeah, I mean, they do it in lorries. sections at a time, don't they? I mean, you can, it can last for hours. So um, I'd have thought they use a big crane if it's taking if it is starting to set um, without it being stirred. I guess you could have a hopper on the end of a crane with some stirring motor on it mm. if you need it. Um, you could, with a fast crane, you could probably get concrete up a skyscraper relatively quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it is a sort of um, scrabble thing, isn't it? If you're laying a piece of you know concrete down for a, for a garage base or something, it's like, ah, 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 until the cat walks across it or something. This one comes from Val in Clacton. It's all about slugs. Funny little creatures. In the daytime, you find a slug in under something in the garden. It tries to go back somewhere in the dark. So if it was to stay dark all day, how does the slug know that it's night time? I don't have any specific evidence on slugs. It's certainly not my area of expertise. I can make a few guesses. Um, one of them is that just daylight is incredibly, incredibly bright. Um, if you've ever been in a room um, which is lit by daylight and then you turn the turn the lights on, although if it was nighttime, you turn the lights on, it makes it makes the room feel incredibly bright. Mm. If it's during the daylight, it hardly makes any difference at all. Mm. It's because sunlight is incredibly strong and even just off even if the sun's in under clouds day, um daylight is very very strong mm. um so the slug might be able to see little bits of light sort of little chinks of light getting in through to where it is which is really quite dark but it might get even darker at night time um the other thing it can probably detect is temperature and humidity um when when the sun goes in it gets dark the temperature is going to drop the humidity is going to rise um, and the slugs, once once the temperature gets cold, once it gets cold and damp enough, the slugs probably going to come out. Because actually, in fact, I wouldn't surprise me if that was the reason. Because during the um, day, you sometimes get slugs coming out if it's very wet. Mm. 
So they're probably essentially just waiting for it to be damp enough and cool enough for them to be happy and so they don't dry up too quickly. Yes, they can slip slide across in the way and it's just awful if you tread on one by mistake, isn't it? Now, Dr Dave, Keith has asked, how vast is space? Does it come to an end or keep going, in your opinion? It's my spacey music. Um, I mean, I... I, okay, how far? The first question is how far can we see? How big do we know the universe is? Um, we can see out um, to about thirteen uh, billion light years. Hmm. So that's light has been travelling for thirteen billion years to hmm. get to us. Light travels at three hundred thousand kilometres every second. Hmm. So that's an awful long way. Yeah, um, we know the universe has expanded a lot in that time, and so um, if if you if the furthest thing we can see at the moment if you then work out how far away that must be now if the whole of the universe has expanded at a constant rate that must be about 60 billion light years away um beyond that it, you start getting into the realms of um of cosmology of very um you haven't got a lot of evidence you're in the realms of kind of speculation cosmic <laughs> um i mean there are various theories um there are the people have considered the fact that the universe is it's a bit like a sphere a bit like the earth but in more dimensions so if you're in any direction for long enough you'll get back to where you started um i don't know that this is completely ruled out um i think there is some cosmology which indicates it's probably unlikely um but to be honest on that scale there are lots of things we don't understand. Um, there's, there's this big problem called dark matter, which essentially means that um, astronomers don't really understand, cosmologists don't really understand the way the universe works on really big scales. Yeah. And they've invented things which might solve that problem. We don't know if it exists. It might just be that, they don't, that we don't understand how gravity works on large scales. Um, so beyond that, I don't know. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Now, let's get to our next question. Where have we got to? Let's click forward up here. Uh, Gillian Ipswich was um, just hearing us talk about spiders. She can't stand them, but she's, she has watched them and she does find them fascinating. And she says, why is she so scared of spiders? In this country, it seems like a very strange thing to be scared about because virtually all the, sp all the spiders in the UK aren't going to do you very much harm. Um, none of them are particularly poisonous. I think one of them might hurt a little bit if it um, manages to bite you, but none of, none of them are actually going to do you any serious harm. So it seems a very strange thing to be scared of. Um, in other countries um, where we uh, have evolved, um, mm. sort of Africa, there are lots of quite nasty um, sort of creepy crawlies which are really quite poisonous and mm. could do you a lot of harm. So it sort of certainly makes sense that you would be um, aware of small creepy crawly things which might um, uh, bite you and do you a lot of damage. Yeah, I think it goes back to these programmes you used to watch as a child when you're having your tea and suddenly they'd have these big insects, <laughs> which were only small really, but the camera yes. work was fantastic on them. And they used to be like climbing up and sort of almost getting in your dinner as you're watching TV. And um, you used to think, oh no, because they just, um, they, they look like little monsters really, but they're yeah. not, they're quite happy things. But yeah, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of 
yeah, fairy I'm, spiders. I think there's certainly a tendency. I think it would make sense. I, I don't. I haven't looked into this, so I don't have any evidence that um, it would make sense for you to be um, sort of a bit aware of kind of creepy crawly things which might be poisonous. I don't know whether. I, I have a feeling that the spider thing might be um, that sort of a general awareness of creepy crawly things, and then on and then associated with that sort of a cultural thing. Yeah. Because if your if your parents are scared of something. It would be a good thing for you to be scared of it because if it's there's probably a reason a mimic, why their parents it, yeah. so uh, are scared of it. So it's better for you to mimic them than discover that actually it was poisonous and you die. Mm. So I think it's probably a mixture of cultural effects and a general tendency to be aware of creepy crawly things. Mm. Keith says, talking of spider steel for bulletproof things, years ago he had an aluminium-lined suit. How cosmic is that, Keith? Um, supposedly to keep the heat in and the cold out. Would it be a good thing to still make these? Um, yeah, using aluminium as an insulation material first seems quite strange because actually aluminium is a very, very good conductor of heat. Yeah. Uh, if you grab hold of one end, end of an aluminium bar, if the other end's hot, you, this, this end's going to be hot. Um, the reason why they do it is um, aluminium is also a very good material to make mirrors out of. Ah. And quite a lot of heat is transferred by radiation. If you if you have a hot electric fire and you put your hands near it, mm. you can sort of feel the heat coming off it. That's actually a form of light called infrared light, mm. um, which is just which is beyond the red end of the spectrum. If you look at a rainbow, it's quite the, the heat which is coming off a um, bar is quite a long way off the red end of the spectrum. And so, and you, this is what you feel. And if you put a mirror near near light, the light's going to bounce off the mirror and go somewhere else and not heat up the mirror. Mm. So if you have a shiny piece of aluminium um, in your suit, then any um, radiative heat, heat radiation which hits it, is going to bounce off and not heat you up. So it acts as a very good form of insulation. Um, there's some very, some modern house, housing insulation which uses this. You have lots and lots of layers of plastic covered in a very, very thin layer of aluminium, so it makes a nice mirror mm. um, with layers of glass, thin layers of glass fibre in between. With sort of 10 or 15 layers of this, mm. you can get a form of insulation which is as good as maybe six or eight inches of rock wall. Mm. So, yes, I, th- I mean, they, they definitely use it for the sort of emergency blankets as well. Once you see people putting on at yes. the end of um, yeah. sort of the London Marathon and things. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a principle. I don't know whether people do use it. I, I would be surprised if they don't use it at all. Yeah. They're very hot fires. be quite um, shiny, wouldn't it? I might like something like that. <laughs> now, John in Peterborough says, uh, in the Victorian times, they used to run mills by steam. One steam engine used to run 50 looms. How efficient was that in comparison to running the same amount of looms that you would probably use today with electricity? Um... There's a couple of reasons why they don't do it, and one of them is certainly um, efficient. One of them is the fact that it was generally lethal. You had all these huge belts flying around the factory, and small children used to get trapped in them and killed and lose arms, fingers, legs. Uh, It was a horrible place to work, I think. Uh, And the other one was efficiency. For a start, steam engines, particularly the old ones, were horribly, horribly inefficient. Um, I don't have any figures in my head, but... I mean, sort of at least a tenth as efficient as a modern car engine, and certainly at least a tenth as efficient of a, as a modern power station. Mm. So that was you're throwing away coal um, at the beginning. They weren't very well insulated. They ran at very low temperatures, um, and the higher the temperature you run a steam engine, the more efficient it is. Um, and so that was horribly inefficient. And also, 
um, moving energy around mechanically isn't very efficient. You're you're losing energy at all of the joints. You're losing energy pulling belts around and bending belts and stretching belts, and all of the bearings are getting hot, slightly warmer and warmer if you keep them really well oiled. So that's not very efficient. Um, electricity is actually remarkably efficient. If you've got a well-designed motor, um, it can be over 90% efficient, so you're only maybe losing 10% of the energy you're putting in. Same with a generator. And certain, and if you transmit it well, you might you can lose less than 5% of the energy. So I would have thought that electricity is... There's a reason why people use electricity. One of them is much more convenient, much safer, and the other one is it is a lot more efficient. Here's a good question from Kev in Great Yarmouth. Absolute zero is represented by the complete cessation of movement in an atom. If heat can be shown as an indication of the speed at which the atoms are moving and nothing can move faster than the speed of light, then heat too must have its limits. Ooh, Dr Dave, if so, then what? Slightly more subtle. Heat is actually a, a measure, or temperature anyway, is a measure of the energy, um, essentially the energy per atom. It's a little bit more subtle than that, but the energy per atom um, in a material. Um, the hotter it is, the more energy each atom's got. Um, so an absolute zero is a temperature which you can't take any more energy out of a system. Actually, because of quantum mechanics, it doesn't mean that everything has stopped moving. Um, because um, in some senses, an electron, even if you can't take any more energy out of it, it still it still has to be going around the atom for it not to fall in. Um, and so it's still got some energy, but you can't that en- you can't get that energy out. It's locked in there. Um, so absolute zero is when you've taken all the energy you can out of a material thermally, and it can't get any colder. Uh, as to maximum temperatures. Although there is a speed limit, there isn't an energy limit. In fact, the reason why you can't go faster than the speed of light is that to take something with mass and make it go at the speed of light, you need an infinite amount of energy. You, um, every time, if you get slightly closer, if you're getting 99% of the speed of light, you need a ridiculous amount of energy. To get the next um, half a percent, you need far more energy than you needed to get to 99% of the speed of light. And to get that next next halfway there you'd need more energy than you need, needed before mm. and so to actually get there you'd need an infinite amount of energy and because temperature is a measure of the amount of energy per atom that means that you can still keep getting hotter and hotter and hotter forever because you can keep putting more and more energy in even if the particles can never go faster than the speed of light dr dave I'm, I'm sat here looking at him with an intelligent look on my face in wonderment here he's such a bright chap now is it possible dr dave asked mike to reverse gravity, i.e. gravity pulls upwards? Depending on your definition of gravity pulling upwards, um, if you, if in, so, in, some way, in some senses, if you go to Australia, if, compared to here, then gravity is pulling upwards um, because um, it's pulling in the opposite direction to here. Um, but we sort of define downwards as a direction which gravity is pulling in. So um, it's almost always pulling downwards. If you mean, is it possible to make gravity so it repels mm. as far, um, because at the moment as far as we know anything with mass attracts anything else with mass and, and everything else with mass um, so all the lump, all the bits of the earth attract each other and pull it into a sphere um, as far as we know no um, no one's found anything which ha- it w- is, um, has a repulsive form of gravity mm. so no thank you very much for that question Bob in Essex 
has asked, what is the actual speed of electricity? Also, well, if you were to send a pulse of electricity and then turn it off with the original pulse, travel the end. To the end. Okay, what's the speed of electricity? It depends slightly on the material you're using and, um, in fact, there's different, uh, there's different ways of interpreting this. One of them is electricity is a flow of electrons and one interpretation is how fast those electrons moving. And if you look at a copper wire in the ceiling, um, they're actually only moving at millimetres per second. Mm -hmm. They're moving very, very slowly through the material. Mm -hmm. But because all the electrons repel each other, if you've got a big, long wire, um, you're full of electrons, essentially. And if you if you push an extra electron in at one end, then that push is... Imagine a whole row of balls. If you push one ball at one end, each ball is going to push the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one, the next yeah. one. So even though all the balls are moving very slowly... Yeah. Um, the pulse which you put in um, by putting a ball in um, will travel all the way along the the row of balls very quickly. Mm -hmm. So if you put extra electrons in at one end, then that movement is going to get transferred down the wire, depending on nearly the speed of light, sort of between half, um, half 0.7 the speed of light, something on that, again, depending exactly on the material. Mm. Um, So that's very, very quick. Um, if you put in a pulse very quickly at one end, then that pulse, you, you will get a wave travelling down the wire. Right. Um, if you start having pulses moving very, very quickly in sort of millions of times a second, billions of times a second, then you've got to be very careful of this effect. And essentially, it, you get waves travelling down the wire, and you've got to design everything to take into account this. Uh, lastly, um, Keith says, In the Bible, why was copper more precious than gold? It's a long time ago. It's a very long time ago. Um, similarly, in um, South America, um, copper was more, um, more certainly more precious than th- than co- copper. Um, to do with how useful it is. I mean, gold, to be honest, actually isn't very useful for very much. It's only actually had any real uses in the last um, 50, 60 years when, because it's so unreactive. Teeth. You can, yeah, teeth it's been useful for because it doesn't react uh, with anything and it will stay there for a long time. And also for covering um, contacts mm. because it's so very, very unreactive. Um, it doesn't get um, oxidised. You also get a lovely electric contact all the mm. time. So gold is only really valuable because it's pretty and because it doesn't rust, and so it stays pretty. Mm. It doesn't oxidise. Um, so so intrinsically, gold isn't very valuable. It's just rare, so people think it's valuable. So if you're actually interested in doing something with your metal, um, and especially if you have a gold mine nearby and you have quite a lot of gold kicking about, then some useful metal is going to be more valuable. Copper's harder than gold. Um, you can make better um, weapons out of it. You can make better axes out of it, especially if you mix it with tin. Mm. Um, if you mix copper and tin you get bronze which is quite a good metal not as good as steel um, similarly something which I noticed when I was reading the Iliad yes. which um, is the story of um, uh, I think it was, oh, it was either the Iliad or the Odyssey um, Iliad, uh, I think possibly Odyssey with um, Odysseus getting back from the siege of Troy um, written by Homer sort of six or 700 BC uh, written, I think it's written down six or 700 BC. It's probably an older story than that. And one really fascinating thing is that there's one bit of it whereby you know, someone was give, being given, um, giving someone a present to another king and mm. there were cauldrons of silver and cauldrons of gold and even cauldrons of, of iron. Iron. So iron was the, even more va- the, the, the way it was written, that iron was far more valuable than gold. 
Wow. And it's because at that time uh, there wasn't very much iron. It was a very difficult thing to make because yeah. they hadn't really got the technology sorted. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 